Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, Larry Hughes is going to pop out and get the ball. Jordan's going to rub his man off of Leitner and then cut down the center and gets a nice pass from Larry Hughes. Okay, folks, welcome to this week's Believe in Wizards podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Matt Moderno, and I am joined by my much more interesting co-host, Larry Hughes. Larry, I, I think this week especially, people are, are really probably looking forward to, to one thing in particular here from you, the, your thoughts on this Last Dance documentary. Uh, I just kind of open it with that. You know, what'd you think? I was excited, man. I was excited. I knew I, I watched, you know, for two hours and you know, I looked around the room, I watched it with my family and looked around the room to see if anybody else was smiling, you know, because I, I had a smile on my face, man. It brought me uh, back to a place of, you know, just starting my journey and, you know, just kind of, you know, understanding what pro basketball was. But then it just brought me to a space where, man, I, I actually played with that guy, um, you know, during any time of his career. So I was, I was, I was excited. Being from St. Louis is are the Bulls probably the closest NBA team to you guys? That's it. I mean, that's 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 it. I mean, we have Memphis obviously now, um, and you have the Pacers, uh, which is a which is pretty. You know, is you know a lot of people from from St. Louis go to to the Indiana games and are, are Indy fans. But you know, obviously during that time, if you don't have a team, you're probably that's you know, the bandwagon to be on. Exactly, exactly. So they were hopping on Chicago all the way. You know, for me, I'm 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 early 30s, so I, I kind of I remember that going on. But n- this was a nice refresher to a lot of the specifics that that I hadn't remembered. Was there anything new for you? You know, kind of living this a, l- a little more real time. I think just the first um, you know the first couple hours of detail of you know the position you know as they close it out the position that uh, Pippen was in as far as uh, with contracts and uh, salary and what he was making and you know the amount of leverage that a player believes that they have, but, you know, ultimately the management has, you know, full say. So that was, you know, something that stuck to me on the way out. And I'm like, yo, I got to click in, you know, for the next two hours because, you know, they left me in a position where, you know what, I kind of know what's going on in this situation. So it's, it's fun for me to watch as, a, as, a, as an outsider, but also as a guy that's been uh, in the trenches with, um, you know, different organizations and, and, how the operations work. I think the thing that was most exciting to me about it wasn't even something in the documentary, but I heard multiple people at ESPN say that those two might actually be the least exciting of the episodes. So it only gets better from there. I'm, I'm excited. I, you know, I'm, I'm excited. It's a good, uh, it's a good jolt of, of energy. Uh, and as we continue to watch like the hardwood classics and the games that they play on, you know, uh, NBA.com, you know, this is definitely a, a welcomed, old, uh, new sort of sort of viewing. 
I think we're getting to the point now where a lot of guys that play, they, they know who Jordan is, obviously, and they know about him kind of from legendary status, but they didn't see him play other than highlight tapes and stuff like that. And, and I think this gives you kind of more context. And some of these young guys would probably don't even really remember like Kobe in his prime, which, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, but I think that that's the evolution. I think that's the evolution of it is that everything has, has come from somewhere. Uh, how it's packaged, how it's brought to you, like a lot of us would never know on you know, the things and the, the things that we do on the basketball court, the things that motivate us. And, you know, I, I like to say that, you know, Jordan took it to a level and, and obviously Kobe, you know, understood, had the same sort of body type and you know, had the same sort of approach uh, to the game. And, and he took it to a level where he could take it, you know, and then you got a, a 6'9 guy, you know, 270, you know, coming in and, you know, trying to take that mentality of getting up, you know, going to work early, um, you know, all of those things that, that M, you know, put in a place that we all, you know, have, have learned from, you know, the newer generation, they get a chance to experience it, but they don't necessarily know where it came from. So that's the, that's the beauty of it is that the older guys can say, you know what, that guy was doing that and it's not necessarily new, but the way you do it, you know, how the game and how bodies have, have evolved you know, you look really special doing what that guy was doing, you know, 20 years ago. So that's how I like to see it. Uh, you know, for me, and, and it's just kind of the same theme. I remember Jordan as a wizard, obviously, too. But yeah. um, and then he still had a lot of moments then. But there's so much tape, you know, available of, of old games and things like that. Scotty gets a little less love. So I don't really remember him in, in his heyday as much. And I remember some of the Portland days where, you know, like, he was not as dynamic or explosive and he kind of took that backseat kind of complimentary leadership role. You know, you heard in this documentary, they said a lot of people considered him maybe the second best guy in the league at that point to your, to your recollection. And then obviously going against him, how good was Scotty Pippen? Man, Scotty was one of the guys. He was one of those guys that you, you know, you would build a Scotty report around. Um, you would have him as, you know, one of the key, points, you know, in your, your keys to win, you know, if you're playing against those guys on, on, on any team. Uh, for me, he was one of those guys because he played on both ends of the court. Uh, he played offense and defense, which is, you know, MJ did, you know, offense and defense as well, but, but Scotty was like the ultimate glue guy. Uh, he was a guy that you put in pressure. He was a guy that, you know, that could, could wait his turn, you know, and kind of be that role player. But, I, I mean, I got a chance to see him, obviously, when, when MJ left to go uh, play baseball, uh, just the amount of work that he put in, you know, during those couple years really locked it in for me. And I've always been a, a Scottie Pippen fan, just the body type. Uh, like I said, the style of play, playing on both ends. So, for me, it's like I can tell the story. It's not as grand as, as, as the MJ story, but – you know, you talk about having that second guy, you know, having that glue guy, you know, Draymond Green and, and you know, having a guy that, that really brings everything together. I mean, Scottie Pippen was that guy and he's one of the top 50 to 100 players to, to play the game, you know, in my opinion. I've been listening to, a, as most people, I would imagine, a lot of interviews this week with, with people giving their two cents on, 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 you know, the doc so far. And Mark Price was talking today about, you know, he was obviously on those good Cleveland teams about how, they actually game planned more for Scotty by the end, just because you know Jordan did what he did, and he almost like couldn't really stop it, you know, if he was going. But but Scotty, they they kind of 
they strategized about how to take him away so that there weren't really, it was just MJ producing, I guess. And, and that's, that's really the approach of, of you know, a, a young kid, you know, growing up really, I mean, in St. Louis, obviously I, I talked about the wannabe, wannabe like Mike commercials and, you know, that, you know, the Gatorade deal that they had going on and everybody, you know, want to be like Mike, but maybe it was me, you know, not necessarily dreaming as big as, as you want to dream at that time when it wasn't as, as popular to, to dream big, but man, yeah, I want to be like Mike, but I got a really good chance of being like Scotty. That's not a bad place to fall when you talk about, you know, Mike and Pip. It's like, okay, yeah, I want to be like Mike, but that guy is, is really special. But check out Pip. Like, you can really do those things. So that's, that's kind of how I look at it as well. You're not exactly settling if you end up uh, a similar player to Scotty. Right, right. Uh, one of the things I, that Steve Kerr said, too, that I thought was interesting is that as good of a defender as as Pippen was, a lot of times they didn't even put him on the other team's best guy, that they let him play on a weaker offensive player so he could just sort of play free safety or center field. You don't see really any guys that do that today. Is that the spacing or the shooting doesn't allow you to do that, or, or what do you think? It's 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 probably the spacing. Uh, you know, in those days, obviously, you know, the one foot, one foot in the paint, um, you know, a guy that's lifted above the free throw line, you kind of had to play the option to play that, that cat and mouse game of protecting the basket, but also being close enough to your man. In today's game, you know, everyone is so far out, you know, around that three-point line, even if your spotter is the, is the guy that's in the corner who's not necessarily the, the, the best player, but that's the easiest three-pointer, so you don't necessarily want to leave that guy. So I think it's the nature of the game. Um, and to most you know, good defenders, they don't necessarily like to be on the best player so they can utilize, obviously, their brain and, and be in the right spot at the right time. So that makes a whole lot of sense, uh, especially hearing from a guy that was you know, right next to him in the trenches, and that's how they, that's how they operate. Those things are very interesting to me. Just the behind the scenes of how they, they sort of strategize to, to be that impressive. And, and, you know, every highlight is one of the two of them, a fast break dunk or, you know, an acrobatic layup. But, but everybody pretty much says that the toughest thing about those Bulls teams was you just couldn't score on them. And, and the Utah teams would go like seven minutes without a basket. And that's, that's kind of crazy to, to see that highlighted in this, this video so far. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, every good story seems to have a villain, I guess. And, um, the popular documentaries, that's been a theme lately, I guess, with Tiger King, pretty much everybody was the villain, it seemed like. But uh, <laughs> the villain for The Last Dance so far has been Jerry Krause. Did you ever interact with Jerry or, or any any thoughts on how you know they portrayed him so far? No, but I, I think that that's consistent in, in that day and age of, of, of leadership. Just a separation of, of thought process and, and where, you know, those general managers came from. I mean, like, like the the owner said in the piece is that he was you know on the baseball side and his whole idea was the structuring of baseball and and how that relates to basketball and his idea he just wanted to put a team together that could win uh, i'm not sure if that was a passion so when you talk about you know these guys now and the, the you know guys in these general managers roles now they're like former players they're really in, intertwined within the game so there's a lot of passion there on how they you know, how they lead their situations now, which I think is, is probably different from back when, when, when those guys were leading. 
guys now, I think, in that role have to be more relationship focused. You see the the former agent is a big one now. And, and obviously, their whole job is to have good relationships with people. And, you know, when you're a former player or a former coach or, you know, whatever, whatever your experience is, it's it just, you can't afford to, to burn a lot of bridges, I, I think. And it sounded like he didn't seem concerned with that at all. Well, those guys needed him more than, than these guys need you know, leadership now, so to speak. I mean, in a, in, in a sense, because these guys are making so much money now than the dollars that they were making back then is like, you really had to walk a fine line. Um, it was a, it, it, you know, that guy really held your future um, in his hands. And I think that the dollars have gotten uh, so big now that, you know, leadership understands that it's now, you know, it's a partnership. You, know, you got to get the best out of you. You got to get the best out of me. And then we got to work together to, to, to do it. If you had maybe the two best players in the world on one team and they unanimously hated a general manager on a team today, I don't think that guy holds that job very long. So that was kind of one of the wild things to see to me, just how tense or, or acrimonious that relationship was that they were actually shit talking him to his face and he just kind of turned away. Yeah, that, that was one of the things that I thought was, you know, was, was the comedy part of it. Uh, obviously, there was some animosity there, uh, but I'm watching it as kind of an insider, you know, understanding what those guys are going through and kind of what they're talking about as far as just being, I don't know how you put it, just not on the same page, you know, as management. I've been there, so I'm looking at it like, uh-oh, I hope they don't go too far. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, these things have already happened, but it's just an understanding of what, uh, you know, what kind of what goes on behind the scenes. That was cool. And, and I think you just really hit on it is while watching this, I kind of felt like I was sort of living through it as they're going, you know, like, come on, Scotty, don't yell at him on the bus. Like, it, he just kind of sat there like, oh, I hope, you know, hope this doesn't blow up. Um, you, you touched on it a little bit. Any any situations for you where just you and a GM like very clearly weren't on the same page and or they didn't deliver on what they promised when you signed there or whatever? Yeah, I think... Um... Cleveland was a, was a tough situation uh, because we were coming in, everyone was new. Uh, we had a new general manager, new head coach, uh, building a new situation. We're building around uh, LeBron. There was just just misunderstandings, you know, just around every corner that, that you would turn as far as to, you know, just having the right communication. So that was one of those situations for me is like you had to, you know, take a step back and, and realize that you are being paid to play basketball. You're not necessarily being paid, you know, for your opinions or for your thoughts. So that was another, you know, learning process, you know, learning curve within my career that I was like, okay, when it's time to just play basketball, then that's what you, that's what you need to do. So you don't get into, uh, you know, a lot of the off the court uh, locker room issues, uh, dividing the locker room. Uh, There's a point in time where I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to play basketball and, and let everything, you know, happen the way it's supposed to happen. So I think for me, I was trying to save, you know, the divide of a locker room or just any sort of tension or conflict between players siding with players versus siding with management. And I think that's some, some of the things what MJ was talking about is just, you know, some guys can handle it and some guys can't. Uh, some guys can, can, you know, walk that fine line and some guys can't. Scotty took the approach where he was going to sit out you know, and just kind of waited out, you know, until his time was over. And I wouldn't say that's a bad approach, but, you know, you are leaving the guys that you, you, you know, you made a commitment to. Uh, you do kind of leave those guys in the, in the wind. So 
that's the situation for me when you got to weigh your conflicts with management or your commitment to your peers and the guys that are on your team. Yeah, I mean, you probably some amount of, if you side with management on it, you maybe you feel like a sellout or, or guys take it a little personally if, if they think that that's, you know, guys are sensitive about things like that. Even, even, you know, tough guys in a professional sports locker room, you still have, you have feelings about things and, and you don't want to get the sense that somebody doesn't have your back, I guess, too. Yeah. Your, your window is short. Right? Your, your window is short. Uh, your, your basketball window is short. So, I think all of us, we want to be loved while we're playing a basketball game. and We want to be treated the right way and all those things just because, you know, we realize it's, it's a very short uh, time uh, in, your, in your life. Uh, so, so Pippen obviously had the, the issue with the contract, and, and you see in, in the documentary that, that Jordan called him selfish for the way he handled that, and um, that was obviously his opinion of it. But, you know, Steve Kerr's come out and said, oh, no one else in the locker room. Everybody had his back. It sounded like Phil Jackson had his back. Like, how much does money come up in an NBA locker room? Like, do you talk about contracts and stuff like that with your teammates, or is that sort of taboo to to talk about money? I think it's, it's we talk about it. I don't think we talk about it in a large group. Um, obviously, you know, you may have three or four or five guys on the team that you, you know, have either a prior relationship with or just are kind of in that same boat. Maybe they have a family, you have a family, and you want to compare notes as far as to, you know, what the best situation is could be or what sort of other things should you look at it or if you should look at things differently. I think those conversations definitely happen. Um, we never get in a group and we talk about what this guy is making or sure. you know, how can we get this guy this amount of money. I think it's just, you know, the relationships that you have within a team, uh, that's normally your go-to. Mm -hmm. And MJ is, is the only person that really could come out and, you know, be ahead of Scotty to even have a problem with what he was doing. No one else could could have had a, an issue, you know, in, in my opinion. Uh, but MJ, he, he could have a, a different sort of look and perspective on it uh, than, than I think the other guys because of the sort of load that he had to carry and what it could do for, for the entire team. And, and for MJ, he, he really wasn't making like that much more money in, in context than, than Scotty either. It's not like he had his $100 million deal already and, and Scotty was making, you know, a tenth of that. Uh, granted, it was first on the team in payroll and sixth, which sounds really bad, but it's not, you know, the amount of money guys are making today where first on the team is 40 million and sixth on the team is like four. It's a little less of a, it, a gap. Yeah, man. That, that, that's the history of it. I mean, even, you know, coming up in the league and, you know, really understanding everything that happened with the Bulls or a lot of things that happened with the Bulls and that team. It's like when you were traded or really for me, when I was traded or, you know, I felt like management didn't, you know, communicate in the right way or, you know, I was pulled for this or that reason. I'm like, look, if it happened to MJ, it could happen to me. And that was it. That was in the story. Stop thinking about it. Look, if things like this can happen to MJ, they can definitely happen to you. So that's how I kept perspective on, you know, a lot of things, you know, business-wise or otherwise that went on in the league. So uh, later this episode for the listeners, we're going to be joined by uh, Matt Babcock, who's been involved in, in the in, you know, basketball in pretty much every avenue. He's played at Arizona. He coached uh, professionally in Italy. Uh, he was a NBPA certified agent for over a decade. Uh, he's written about the game for Sports Illustrated. He's uh, running a draft analysis and scouting company called Babcock Hoops. And you can find him at babcockhoops.com. Um, he's going to be on the show later to talk a little bit about the NBA draft with us. But 
Larry, I want to touch on a couple more things about the last dance before we get to that. And, you know, one of the things you saw during uh, the documentary was a little taste of, of how Jordan could be in practices with teammates and, you know, kind of grabbing Ku coach and, and, you know, talking about how he's having to yell at him the whole practice. And um, any stories like that from his time in Washington? Had he mellowed a little or, or you know, or is that kind of the, the guy you remember? No, that's the, the guy I remember. Um, it wasn't to that extreme level. I think obviously, you know, even M learned from, you know, the, the past time, but that's an expectation. That's, um, that's a competitive vibe that, that he always had. I mean, Brendan told a story on, on, on someone else's show about Heard this. Just how he went at B Russell. Yeah. I mean, he would really go at B Russell. He would go at stack. He would go at myself. Like, and it was fun. Like it was, I remember certain moves and different offense and defense that he would do against me that even though he was 40 years old, he was still effective because he would just, he was just so smart. So he would always talk trash. I mean, he would always make a comment. He would always try to see exactly where you're at, whether it's beginning of practice, middle, end, during a scrimmage, uh, getting on a bus. Like he would always shoot you a little shot. This is shoot you a little warning shot just to see you know, what you, you know, what your mentality was or what your thought process was. So he was always challenging guys within those lines. I mean, you know, with the shoot around, I mean, shooting games to, to end shoot around or close out shoot around, I mean, to, to start shoot around. He was always the guy to, hey, you, you missed two in a row now. Or, hey, when next time you gonna make a shot? Like he was always that guy. It sounds like it's more to sort of, to prod you, you know, and, and kind of get you to focus than anything like, you know, openly mean spirited or anything like that. Right. I mean, that's how I took it, but the guys that he, you know, if you can't, if you couldn't take it or if you really, you know, took offense to it, then it's MJ. And I mean, I'm sure it, it cuts and it hurts a lot more coming from a guy like that uh, than anyone else. So I, you know, I loved it. I mean, I, I love just that background, just that mentality, uh, just to really check someone's temperature to see see where they're at, you know, see if they can really handle it. And it, it sounds like he he responded better to the guys that that sort of took it on, like you know, the way you did, and had that approach to it, and welcomed the challenge. But but ever any days where it got tense with with you and he in a practice, or you had to check him, and he gave you maybe too much of an elbow or something. It wasn't. It wasn't because I if if, if I even thought it was too much, I want to take it. Mm-hmm. You know, if I even thought it was too much, I want to take it. But I, I played cards with him on the airplane, uh, trash talk within the card game. So I'm like, I'm a fan, man. So we talk about, you know, MJ between the lines. I'm like, look, I played cards on the airplane with MJ. So I'm looking and waiting on the documentary. I'm like, is there going to be a card where they talk about playing cards? Like, I'm just waiting for all of this stuff to, you know, just to happen, just to say that, you know, I was a part of it. So. As far as like you know how M would, would would talk to you know all the other all the teammates, I mean it was all it was all fun you know fun and games for me. Ever get you out on the golf course? Do you golf at all, Larry? No, no, I, I didn't start uh, playing until I guess probably four years ago. I was like, man, I'm not playing that game. I'm not doing that. Or, but I would definitely you know know about him going out and you know playing after practice or you know going before practice or you know going before shoot around. You know, and now to to see those things, um, you know, in in this time, I mean, it's it's a joy. 
Pippin told the story about, you know, uh, Jordan buying him golf clubs and, and trying to drag him out there. And Pippin said, no, nah, you're, you're not going to take my money. Like, you know, he, he didn't want any part of that. Yeah, everything was a bet. Yeah, everything was a bet. I mean, whether it was paper and trash can, shooting a three, half court three, everything was a bet. They had, um, I think it was the the Woj pod had Patrick Ewing and Jeff Van Gundy on. And I guess, you know, from those Knicks teams, Van Gundy made like a, a famous comment about how Jordan was a con man because he tried to befriend uh, opposing players just to soften them up a little bit. I mean, is the guy really that calculated? Do you think there's a motive to everything or do you just, do you buy that? Hey man, that's where these guys get it from, man. That's what Cole you know, and the mentality of just being an assassin, not shaking your hand when you get on the court. I mean, these guys, we just took it to a different level. So we, we took it as far as we could take it as an individual. And however great that was for, for the public to see now, I think that's what's happening. You know, that mentality of, of who, he, who he was or how he was in practice. I mean, I'm sure that they can side by side um, a few of the MJ practices and the Kobe practices, and they'll be very similar um, to each other just because of what Kobe learned of how M was able to push his players and you know, ultimately win championships. Ron is just a little bit different than that, but those guys you know, took exactly from, from MJ. All right, we're joined here today by Matt Babcock. Uh, Matt is an NBA draft analyst now with Babcock Hoops, which I, I encourage everybody to, to check out. Um, it's kind of my first go-to site for, for you know, mock drafts and, and perspectives on players. And Matt Kindley, uh, of the mocks I look at, I, I think my own opinion of guys I've watched kind of most closely aligns with what you guys put, put out. So that's kind of a, a good point to, to, to start with and then see where everybody else seems to, to be at. But, but thanks for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. And I appreciate you uh, having Babcock Hoops as your go-to. So, so Matt, since we obviously we're a you know believe in Wizards uh, podcast, um, and we're talking about the the draft or the mock draft, wh- where do you see the Wizards uh, coming in at? You know, who's the best? You know, the best options maybe one A, one B in this year's draft. Yeah, the Wizards are in an interesting situation because I think right now they're 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 slotted to be at number nine, if I, if I remember correctly. Um, I, I personally have seven guys in my first tier, and it's uh, there, there's a lot of parity. And so, I mean, I think this year's draft order is going to be pretty pretty crucial for the Wizards. Obviously, if they were to move up, that that puts them in a new category of guys. Uh, but if not, it's it's kind of who's there. And uh, you know, looking at their roster, it's another interesting part is uh, they've got a lot of mi- uh, money committed to to Beal and Wall and. You know, if they decided to move Beal, he obviously would have a lot of market value. Uh, John, you know, I, I think that'd probably be next to impossible to, to move his contract. So you got to take in consideration, if you're taking a guy in, in the mid lottery, and you'd like to, you know, foresee him playing a, a prominent role within the next couple of years. And I think that probably takes him out of guards, would, would be my guess. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're sort of looking at wings or bigs, you know, a guy that could play alongside Rui or, or you know, a, a more of a pure three. Um, you know, with... And with that in consideration, I think that the guy – so I currently have them taking Isaiah Stewart. Uh, the, the way I looked at it there, it was – I think that's on the high side for his market value. Uh, but, you know, just doing background work and just, you know, watching him for the last couple of years, you know, he's uh, he's one of these guys that I think he's getting a lot of criticism for being sort of just a power, you know, brute type big. Um, you know, at Washington, they, they use him, you know, pretty much exclusively as a low post scorer. Obviously, the game in the NBA has kind of gotten away from, hey, throw it down and just you know, you know, bang it. Um, 
but I have seen him in the past. He shoots the ball really well. He plays really hard. And, and I still think there's value for a guy that does the dirty work and provides physicality and just has a motor all, all the way around. And uh, so I went with him. I think he'd be a nice pairing with Rui. Uh, but again, you know, sort of a sort of a tough pick for for that spot. How do you factor, you know, the potential in, in when you represent your your draft? You know, how do you, how does potential factor into you coming out with the complete draft? Yeah, sure. I mean, you definitely have to consider upside. You know, I mean, if there's a guy, especially at you know certain picks, that the further you go down, the the more you probably look at at upside. And as far as hey, it's a little easier uh, pill to swallow. Um, you know, the further along you go in the draft. Um, so I mean, I think guys that you know that range. Uh, RJ Hampton comes to mind. I mean, he, he's got super, super upside. Um, I, I don't think he's necessarily ready to go right away, uh, but he's a combo guard. I mean, I'd like to see him you know, develop his point guard skills. And he's a guy at nine. I mean, maybe they just say, hey, this guy's got too much, too much upside to pass. Uh, that's a real possibility, even though he doesn't really fit you know, positional needs or you know, imminent needs. Uh, but yeah, you, you, have to, you have to kind of take a look at everything. I mean, I, you know, it, it's sort of a, a balancing act of you know, weighing out all the different variables of, okay, this guy – is ready to step in and, and fill a you know, prominent role right away. This guy might be two, three years down the road. He's got to weigh out the pros and cons and, and you know, roll with it. You were obviously an agent, uh, an NBPA certified agent for over a decade. So you've been on kind of both sides of this, looking at it from a team's perspective, but also how to get your client to the, to the right fit. And, um, you know, I, I think what you said about the Wizards needing somebody that's kind of ready to fill a role makes a lot of sense. But their GM, Tommy Shepard's come out and said, you know, they're willing to take a guy that's a project or needs a little time to develop. Maybe that's posturing. I think there's some amount of that that goes on, you know, to kind of throw off other GMs. But how communicative are, are uh, teams and organizations with an agent or a player? Do you, do you get a sense for, hey, this guy might be the kind of what we're looking for? It, you know, really depends. I mean, I think every team operates a little, little differently. Obviously, you know, depending on, um, you know, case by case, the, the relationship with each GM or, or assistant GM. Uh, I mean, I've had situations where I, I think the the front office was being very candid with me and sort of, you know, create an alliance to try to accomplish a mutual goal. Uh, but then you've got, you know, you got smoke screens too. I mean, that stuff, that stuff definitely happens. I, you know, for example, I, I think there was a, a San Francisco Chronicle came out with a big article saying the Warriors, you know, don't like Wiseman and it was just a total smokescreen in my opinion. And so I think that stuff uh, does happen. Uh, but again, it, it, you know, different personalities, different, different people, you know, operate, you know, differently case by case. So this, this might be a little bit of a trick question, but Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> how, how often, and I work with a lot of young players and, and from youth development uh, just from all ages. And obviously, you know, how, how small the game has gotten and, and just the, the number of opportunities that are out there. Uh, for the young people in different pro leagues or statewide and, and otherwise. But how often uh, do you feel like the, the best prospect is actually the best player um, in a draft? Oh, that's a tough one. You know, I mean, it, I think it's, uh, again, I think it's a case-by-case deal. You got to look at each player as his own isolated sort of investment, really. And, uh, yeah, that's hard. I mean, like, for example, this year, the top guys for me, uh, would be not necessarily in this order, Wiseman, Edwards, and Obi Toppin. And they're all very, very different, different stages of their career. Uh, I mean, I think Anthony Edwards has by far the most upside. Um, you know, is he the clear-cut best prospect? You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's pretty close for me. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't think there's a clear answer there. You know, I think it, it really just depends on the draft and depends on the players you're looking at. Last year, who, who was the best prospect going into, into the draft? Uh, I mean, it was, it was Zion. I mean, I, I, had, I had him pegged as the top guy pretty early. 
Um, just he's just so physically imposing. And just, I mean, a- athletically, uh, he's just so unique. If he's able to stay healthy, obviously, and um, you know, job. Ja, I mean, Jaw's a great prospect too, but I, I think he's clear cut behind Zion. And it seems they're running one and two, so it's, that's pretty consistent. Right. Right. You've heard a lot of this draft is is maybe a weaker draft than than the last couple of years, even. But just from a, an amateur draft, uh, you know, observer's perspective, it seems like a pretty deep draft in terms of maybe you might be able to get some role players you know even late into the second round or or maybe some undrafted talent here what do you think about the overall quality yeah I think it's the nail on the head I mean there's there's probably not quite as much star power um you know there's a lot of parity towards towards the top of the draft whereas last year you have Zion I mean everybody was pretty sure hey this kid's gonna be you know franchise player uh, if he's able to stay healthy and uh, this year we don't have that quite as much. I mean, I think with uh, you know Edwards being the the highest upside guy, uh, there's still a lot of question marks. I mean, he, he really, um, you know, he's he's behind as far as his basketball IQ and just understanding you know how to do the little things. Uh, he might have some bumps in the road early on uh, in his career, but uh, you know, as far as the the depth of the draft, I, I actually like this draft, and I I think uh, uh, you said it right. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of good role players. Uh, a lot of guys that could probably step in and fill a role right away, which I, I think serves a lot of value to certain teams. Um, and because of that, I think there's going to be a lot more emphasis on positional needs, kind of team building, rather than just taking you know best player available. There, there's not quite as many you know high risk, high reward guys. There's there's only a few uh, that that are you know projected as first round picks. Favorite player in this year's draft, personally. Favorite player. Um, well, I, I guess two guys that I think are somewhat sleepers, you know, across the media, um, Elijah Hughes from Syracuse and, and Jalen Harris from Nevada. Uh, I'm just really high on both of them. And not necessarily, you know, they're my favorite players as far as being the best players, but, uh, you know, I, I think I probably have them higher than, than most. And um, I think they're, they're both, you know, high upside guys that could also step in right away and probably fill a role. And so, I mean, I, I expect them both uh, – you know, to be sort of fringe first round picks. And right now I think they're projected as second round picks on most, most people's boards. You mentioned maybe Isaiah Stewart would be a little bit of a reach if, if the Wizards stayed, you know, where they're slotted currently. Um, it, if they had their way with it, I, I think um, and they end up a little higher. Who's the guy you think they would most be, be well suited to, to pick up or, or who they, who's on their wish list, I guess? Yeah, the guys that I think make sense for for their roster and their their team makeup is uh, I think Wiseman would be perfect. Uh, you know, gives them a big five. That can, I mean, to start off, I mean, he could you know do um, you know all the big you know blue collar big man stuff as far as rebounding, uh, rim protection, rim running. Uh, but he's also long term a guy that I think is going to be able to develop his skill set to be a guy that could stretch the floor and uh, just kind of provide another scoring punch. That would be my number one guy for them. I think uh, Anyeka Kungwu from USC. Uh, I think he would be a good fit as well. He's an undersized five. He he's sort of a hybrid between. Uh, he's like a more athletic Al Jefferson, uh, and then uh, Bam Adebayo. He's kind of somewhere in there. Uh, he's he's very very polished. I mean footwork. You know he finishes both with both hands. Uh, but then he also is a you know he's kind of a you know bull in a china shop. I mean very very physical rim protection rebounder. Um, he would be great. Um, and then if they were to go with uh, with a wing, I think Isaac Okoro would be a nice guy from Auburn. Uh, you know, big, big bodied wing that defends everybody, super athletic. Um, and then I also like Aaron Neesmith from Vanderbilt, you know, big time shooter. I, I think that would be a little bit on the higher side uh, of his range, but, uh, you know, a guy that would fit with what they're doing. Matt, how, how is this, this process? I mean, obviously with the, um, with the coronavirus and everything going on, how, how has this changed your process as far as the, the, whether it be scouting or communication regarding the, the draft? 
Yeah, I mean, scouting-wise, it's, it's changed dramatically. I mean, I, I had my schedule booked. Uh, I, was, I was going right, right before everything uh, kind of went crazy. I was set to go to the Big East tournament, then the Big Ten tournament. Uh, I was probably going to do a couple games of the NCAA tournament, and then we we're going to hit um, – you know, all the high school events, you know, McDonald's, Hoop, Hoop Summit, uh, Jordan Brand Classic. And um, obviously all of that's been scratched. You know, there's no agent workouts now. Uh, it's not looking like there's going to be a combine. And so everything is done from home. I mean, I'm, I'm still working the phones, uh, you know, watching a lot of film. Uh, but, yeah, it's, uh, it's a completely different narrative that, than it is in most years. And, and the, the teams, uh, you know, are in the same boat. Yeah, that, that's a wild scenario. So just the amount of time or the amount of weeks that you can get better, you know, after your college season is over. Right. I guess kids don't have an opportunity to do that, but you guys don't have an opportunity to see uh, that progression just in that, you know, four to six week period. Is that, you know, is that going to hurt those players? I mean, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I've been talking to a lot of people about this, and I think there's certain guys, um, you know, maybe some of the hidden gem types, you know, guys, you know, there's a kid from junior college, there was a, you know, high school kid that's coming out that's a fifth-year prep guy um, that probably needed, you know, the traditional pre-draft process to, to maximize their their upside in, in regards to the draft. Um, you know, so I, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how, how that ultimately affects it across the board, uh, their, their value. And I think with, uh, um, you know, teams, you know, just kind of forced to make an emphasis on uh, watching film and, and doing background checks and, and uh, these, these uh, you know, Skype and zoom interviews, I think mature players that are polished on and off the court are probably going to benefit this a lot because um, you know, they're just, they're going to be safer picks. You know, they get the guys that are a little bit more unknown. They're not going to have that opportunity to go in and impress in a you know, full staff in person and, you know, busting somebody's butt in an individual workout or, or at the combine. Uh, so I'm, I'm expecting, you know, some of the more mature players, to, to you know, sort of rise, you know, as we kind of go through this. Someone like an Isaiah Stewart, obviously he's only a freshman, he's pretty young, but he's physically mature and, and, and played like a, a grown man. You know, someone like him where you have tape on him bullying other people in, in, in the Pac-12, um, does that benefit him, I guess, based on that, over someone like um, Precious or Two-Way that might look better in drills and, you know, test better athletically? Yeah, no, I think Isaiah falls in, into that. You know, he's a freshman, but I mean, he's very mature physically. Uh, but you know, doing his background checks too. I mean, this kid's a mature kid. He's got the you know the growth mindset. You know, he, he's a you know he's just a kid you could count on. You know, and so I mean, from an evaluation standpoint, I trust that that kid's going to maximize his potential. You can nitpick, okay, his you know his foot speed isn't that great. He's only you know six eight six nine as a five. Uh, you know, he's, you know predominantly a low post scorer in college. But at the end of the day, I think he's going to improve, and I think he's capable of stepping in and playing right away. And he's a guy you want on your team. And so I, you know, I, I chose to put him at least for this last mock draft on the high side of his market range because of a lot of those things. So the, the introduction of the G League and with everything going on with the high school players that are the guys that are eligible. Yeah, but Jalen Green, uh, who's who's entered into that that process, what does it look like for him um, this this year coming up? Well, I mean, from a you know short-term business standpoint, I mean, it's a smart move. I mean, he's making five hundred thousand from from the league, uh, and he's able to you know capitalize on endorsement deals. And so, uh, I mean, he's legally going to make way more money than he would have going to college, right, or any Australia or anywhere. So, I mean, it, you know, he's he's able to sort of capitalize an extra year early, uh, which I mean, I you know, uh, I, I think one people you know one thing that people lose sight of is that you know professional athletes' shelf life is is relatively short compared to a doctor or a lawyer. And so having one year of making multiple millions, that's a, that's a lot of damn money. And so he's able to kind of start that now. Uh, I mean, I still have a lot of questions as far as how it's all going to work with the team. Um, I mean, I, you know, 
I'm assuming, you know, Sharif, you know, has got it under control, but you know, a weight program and that kid needs to get stronger. I mean, that's, if, if anything, he needs to add some weight uh, before he steps in the NBA and, um, you know, what's their schedule going to be like? You know, I, from our stand is it's going to be a branch off of the G League. They're going to play games against G League teams. But, I mean, still a lot of questions of how many games are they playing? What's the, you know, what's the typical day and week like? Um, but, you know, uh, at first glance, it, it seems like a, a pretty smart, smart deal for the kid. So, so I'm, I'm a former player, right? And like you said, that, that shelf life is, is, is very short. That window is very short. And I get a little bit concerned when there's not a platform that's actually set for, for these young people to roll into. So a lot of these things are being done on the fly. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, what, what are your thoughts as far as in making sure that uh, we're not hurting these young players as opposed to hurting them? I mean, as opposed to helping them without having, you know, that, that concrete format for them to now actually roll into? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I don't think anybody really wants to be the guinea pig of any kind of project like this, right? So there, there is a certain level of, of risk. There's no way around it. You know, but I, you know, I think, uh, you know, no, knowing Shreve personally, I, I know, I know he's do, taking care of business. And so, you know, I, I have confidence that they're going to do everything they need, need to, to make sure the kid develops properly and that this is a, a success. And, um, you know, I think they're, you know, obviously needing to be careful as, as far as which players they're plugging into these spots. You know, obviously, the, you know, early on these first couple of years, uh, they, they need these things to go well to establish the, the long-term plan, like you're saying. So there, there is a, you know, a credible outlet for these kids to go and develop and make some money, you know, early on in, in their careers. Yeah. Even just the, you know, standard G League itself, um, the, you know, obviously there's a local team here in Washington, the Capital City Go-Go. Uh, I go to a lot more of those games than, than most people, and I'm often the only media person there. I'm probably one of 75 people in attendance. You got a question, if, if there's a season where you can't have fans anyway, does the G League season even still make sense? And if that doesn't exist in its traditional you know, instantiation, what does that mean for, for Jalen? Does he go a season without playing games, or do they line up scrimmages for players like that? Do you think the NBA is already working on contingencies, I guess? I'm sure they're working on that kind of stuff. I mean, there's no way there's no way they're paying the, these these top high school kids that are going to be top, you know, potentially the top picks in next year's draft uh, without having an infrastructure for them to play games and all that. And um, I, I don't see that being a big problem. These these G League contracts aren't that aren't that big of an expense for the NBA teams. Uh, I don't think they would would scratch it just for the sake of saving a little bit of money. So, so Matt, what's the process like for you coming up with a mock draft? Do you start with, hey, these are how I evaluate guys, and you put them on a list, and then as you watch more tape, you kind of move them up and down, and then when you do the mock, you kind of adjust for team fit? How, how do you go about doing stuff like that? Yeah, so the first thing is, you know, I've, I've got a, a full staff of guys, uh, former NBA scouts, Fran Fischel is a senior advisor for us. I mean, I, I pick their brains, and so how I have it set up is that we're, we're essentially simulating like we're our own front office. And so these guys go on the road. Um, I'll get the media credentials and they need to send me a scout report. And so as the GM would, I take all of their information into consideration when I'm making picks for the mock draft. And as far as uh, my, my protocol and process for actually doing the mock draft, I, uh, I think it's a little bit different than if you're worth a team. Cause I mean, you know, an individual team has a certain set of goals and, you know, philosophies as far as how you want to build the team, how you want to play. Uh, we're kind of making picks for the, for the whole league, which makes it pretty complicated. Uh, so, I mean, I think doing just a, a big board would, uh, you know, be counterproductive because it's just a big board for one team would be completely different, you know, for another. So how I do it is I use the, the five traditional positions and I rank them. And then I just, you know, I pretty much just go team by team. I look at the depth charts, you know, uh, 
contracts. I mean, you know, really try and look at, okay, who needs a player now? Who needs a, you know, how's this guy fit into the, the, the team two, three years from now? Uh, and really just, you know, put myself in, in, the, in the general manager's chair for a few minutes and just make a, make a decision. Draft me, put me on the board. <laughs> I'm, coming, I'm coming back. <laughs> no, Larry, it's funny. I, was, uh, I told my dad that I, I was coming on your show. And I, he's been with the Milwaukee Bucks. His first year was your draft. He told me uh, he went to St. Louis five times that year, and uh, <laughs> so he, he was pretty tight with Spoon and then uh, Greg Lackey. He said, "He said, hey, Larry Hughes, that was that was my guy. They went with Tractor that year, but you yep. were high on the, you were higher on their list." Yeah, and then that was a trade, right? right. That was a trade with yeah, uh, with, with Dirk with Dirk. Yep. Yeah, we don't we don't want to talk about that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a small world, man, and then basketball always brings everybody, you know, together, and then talk sure. about memories and whatnot. It's a great thing that you're doing, man, just giving, giving these guys some shine, man. You're, you don't know. I mean, I'm sure you do know just how much of a, of a boost, you know, when you get, your, get to see your name on anyone's mock draft and how much more energy it gives you to continue to push forward and try to move up, you know, on those drafts. So you guys not only give out information, but it's a, it's a motivation tool uh, for a lot of the guys that, that are on these lists as well. No, I appreciate you saying that. You know, and one thing I, you know, before I started doing this, that I, I dealt with that a lot as an agent, dealing with underclassmen that are considering coming out in the draft. And it's, uh, I, I saw how much weight it carries. And, you know, with, with myself and, and with our, our staff, we always talk about being responsible. I mean, especially with these younger kids. Like, you know, so when we're putting a name on there, we're taking it seriously knowing that, you know, certain people are looking at this and they're using this as part of their decision. And uh, so, you know, I'd like to, I like to think that I'm, I'm a, a positive force, you know, in basketball, even if it's just a small party or trying to try and do our part. Yeah. yeah. Just, just piggybacking off of that, Matt, I think um, hearing how professionally you guys approach it and there's a real, you know, method to the madness about how you come up with these lists and, and there's real substantial analysis and thought put into it. I think it's really meaningful because I don't know that folks realize that, you know, guys do check these things a lot as players and, Families are are prodding their kids to make certain decisions. Hey, I, this mock draft saw you, you know, number eight. You should definitely leave. And a lot of these, and I won't use any names specifically, but but a lot of them is it's it's a college kid sitting in his dorm that watched one or two games on ESPN and is writing up this mock draft that that people are looking at and, and taking at face value. So the fact that you guys have this real process behind it and you know credible people that have been in the business to to kind of come up with that, I think it, it means a lot. No, I appreciate that. I mean, that's that's the the approach we're trying to take is, hey, this this is sophisticated. I mean, we're you know with each one of these picks, we 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 put a lot of value into it, and so it's just not just you know breaking down a guy on synergy. It's you know doing some intel work. It's you know looking at the contracts that an NBA team has. I mean, just pretty much you know looking at all the different variables that that a team general manager and owner and, and front office staff look at. And like you said, I, I think a lot of these mock drafts are, are sort of you know they'll watch some games and make a personal opinion on it. Um, we're trying to take it to you know another level. And I just I have one last question. Just that's talking about just the scouting process, and I know you have guys that go out. Is there a standard scouting form that you guys use, or you is it each individual just kind of giving their opinion on players and the or the game, or do you yeah, have a set yep. standard? Yeah, no, I have a template that I send to my guys. It's pretty simple, and I mean, I've really um, you know followed my dad. My dad's been in the NBA for so long. I, I, he sort of taught me his his preference of how to do a scouting report. And uh, the, the one thing that I stress is that keep it very simple. We we like to keep it you know keywords and bullet points so it's easy to read. And uh, you know the one thing he said is okay if you're working for an NBA team and you're lower on the totem pole, you want the higher ups to read it. If you write write a novel, 
they're just going to throw it in the trash. So um, I, I really got a habit of doing that. And I've, I've tried to push my guys to do that too, just so that everybody's able to exchange their information pretty easily and everybody's on the same page. That's cool. That's cool. Really cool. Uh, Matt, before we let you get out of here, and um, thanks again for the time, can I can I just throw a couple quick hitter names at you that that the fan base at large here has kind of been throwing around, and, and just kind of see what you know what your quick thoughts like that you know are on some of those guys. So, uh, obviously from from the wing perspective, um, you mentioned Isaac Okoro already, but what about a, a Denny Avdia? Oh yeah, Avdia would be that was the name I, I should have mentioned. He he would fit in really well. Um, you know, six nine, um, sort of like a point forward. I mean, he's got a little bit, a little bit of Ben Simmons in him. Even though I know Ben is used as a point guard in Philly, um, you know, he's, he's a, he takes it off the board, can initiate the offense. Uh, you know, sneaky, athletic, and his shooting's coming around. Uh, I, you know, depending on where Washington's picking, I would bet he's probably not going to be there unless they move up into the top four picks. But yeah, he he would be a good fit, and uh, seems like has the right personality of stepping in and you know being a big time player. Uh, Sadiq Bay. Oh, I love Sadiq. And uh, so, so Fran Fraschilla works with me. His son's on the Villanova staff. Fran's been pushing him to me for like a year and a half. And uh, I, I think Fran was right. The, the kid, uh, ultra high character. I mean, I, I guess he was recruited by Ivy League schools, you know, really intelligent, uh, just ultimate growth mindset type prospect. I mean, you're going to get everything out of this kid. Uh, defender, stretches the floor, uh, really high on him. I mean, he doesn't necessarily have uh, the elite athleticism that would make you think, hey, this kid's a lottery pick. Uh, but when it's all said and done, you've done all your homework, he might be able to sneak in into that range. Uh, Devin Vassell. Yeah, he's a good player too. He uh, extremely long. I mean, crazy long wingspan. Uh, offensively kind of reminds me of Jeremy Lamb. Uh, just, you know, not not real flashy, but just kind of gets gets buckets. Great in catch and shoot, mid-range game. Uh, uses his length well, sort of crafty. And then defensively, uh, he's he's very versatile. I mean, using his length and uh, he's got good instincts, and yeah, he's he's right in that range too, as a you know mid first round, uh, you know late lottery type guy. Patrick Williams. So Patrick Williams is one of the upside guys, and so I mean he started off this season uh, slow. I, I watched him in high school stuff quite a bit, and I really liked him. I, I thought he was going to be more of a big wing, and uh, you know seeing him this year, he's really filled out. I, I see him more now as like a modern four that can might be able to play a little bit of three, uh, but yeah, six eight, six nine, uh, really athletic, shoots the ball. I could put on the floor a little bit, you know, defend, you know, multiple positions. He, uh, I think he's just still kind of growing, growing into his body um, and, and just sort of growing up you know, along the way too. Uh, but yeah, three, four years from now, I mean, he might be one of the better players in the draft. And this last one is, isn't a name I've heard a ton, you know, locally with, with regard to the wizards, but I'm just kind of curious for input on, but uh, any type I've, I've watched of uh, Alexei Pokusevsky, and I'm sure I probably just butchered that, but it looks like he's playing guys in my 30 and over league, you know, like just, just the, the competition level didn't look particularly noteworthy. What, how do you judge a guy like that or evaluate someone like that? First of all, you said his name perfectly. So nice. there you go. And, <laughs> but yeah, they call him Poku. Um, he, another, another upside. I said, there's not many upside guys, but you know, brought up two of them. Um, Poku's a whole ultimate upside. He's kind of like a, a Porzingis type. I mean, he's seven feet tall. Uh, I mean, physically, he's very undeveloped. I mean, he needs he needs multiple years in the weight room of just gaining some weight, gaining strength. But he is so talented offensively. I mean, he puts it on the floor. He shoots threes. Uh, I mean, just really high upside just because of the offensive skill set. If you get his body together, I mean, he, he could end up being a big-time guy. All right, folks, that was Matt Babcock from Babcock Hoops. Uh, again, please check them out. You can find Matt on, on Twitter. It's just at Matt Babcock, correct? Uh, at Matt Babcock 11. 
11. Okay. Got it. And then at Babcock hoops. Um, so, so a lot of good video breakdowns of, of players and you can find the mock draft as well. And then um, Matt, you've had some articles too about your experience, you know, in the business, especially as an agent. So I think people would find that, you know, really interesting, especially as, you know, people kind of need basketball content to, to, to fill their time right now. So we encourage everybody to check them out and thanks again for your time. Uh, thanks guys. Take care. All right. That was our interview with Matt Babcock. Again, please uh, check that out if you're interested in any of the draft content. Really interesting. And I think, um, like you said, an easy, easily digestible format. So pretty easy way to, to get up to speed on the draft pretty quickly. So uh, Larry, before we get out of here, I, I just want to take a couple minutes to uh, pick your brain a little bit about something. Bradley Beal recently did an interview with Fred Katz of The Athletic and um, you know, just sort of talked a little bit about what this year was like. And I, I think the first sort of takeaway was that I think he knew coming into this year that it would be hard, but uh, had no idea actually how hard, you know, have you been in a situation where, you know, you've been winning a lot and then suddenly the team maybe underachieved from what you expected and you had to carry a bigger load. Like what does that feel like for a player? And are you kind of surprised by that comment? You know, just what's your take? Uh, no, not, not necessarily surprised. I mean, winning in the NBA is hard, you know, and as a competitor, you, you go at it and, you understand the amount of work you're putting in. You know it's you know it's elite. You know that you're working out. You know maximum hours of the day. You know that you're eating right. You know that you're getting enough rest. Uh, you know that you're preparing yourself. You know to be world class, to be elite. But in the NBA, I mean, it's a fine line uh, on winning between winning and losing. And teams really do matter. You know players really do matter. Systems really do matter. If if you know that it's going to be tough. In the beginning, it's probably going to be that way throughout, right? It's, it's not going to be a miraculous change uh, in process or, or in, you know, the function of the team. It's going to change, you know, your original thought process. So, I mean, my advice would just, you know, keep working, keep doing things on a, on a personal elite level, and then you allow John Wall to come back. You allow Hachi to mature. Uh, you, you allow the front office to do their job. But... I think his focus is is right. You know, his focus is to try to be the best that he can be and see if that'll uh, transfer over to the team, which until you have a, a full team and a full system, you know, it's it's going to be tough. Yeah, I think he took a little bit of a grief, you know, at certain times um, during the season just for, for some of the comments about, you know, we, we didn't play any defense and things like that. And these comments seemed a lot more measured, you know, that he'd had some time to think about it, not in the heat of the moment or, 10 minutes after the game when you, you know, barely had a chance to cool down, but, you know, you talked about how they needed to grow and, and what that was like and guys kind of picking up the system and how guys made guys made progress that you really don't even see when you watch, but, you know, maybe they picked up a rotation a little bit better by the end of the year. And how much of that of, of a player is, is maybe things that people don't see as obvious improvement, but guys are making kind of incremental growth. I think it's huge. I mean, every day is a stepping stone uh, to stack consistent days on top of each other. I think that's the goal of, of any individual and, and, of course, the team. And as you do that, as you become more consistent with those rotations, you become more consistent with that communication, then, you know, some W's will fall out of the bottom of that. Will it be the, the number of W's that you want? Uh, may or may not be. But once you do things consistently where the guy next to you, they know exactly what you're doing. They know what your motive is. More wins will come. And I think that that happens with time. Uh, this is, I mean, it was essentially a first or second year team uh, that, that Brad was playing on this year. 
uh, with the, you know, with, with how the roster laid out and then management coming in. So all of these things, once he gets a chance to look back on it, he'll understand them. But like you said, it's um, as a competitor, he's in the moment, man. He, he doesn't want to lose a game. I, I, I know the kid. I know that that's not in his makeup. So, you know, I think that that's a, a gift and a curse, you know, when you're rolling into a situation where you knew uh, it was going to be tough. So now you can't blame anybody. You just got to keep going to work. From a fan perspective, I think one of the things he said that that kind of resonated the most and, and I liked hearing the most was uh, when he got asked, you know, what he needed to improve on most. It, it wasn't, uh, you know, pull up threes or or something like that. It was, I need to lead these guys. And, and you know, he, I think he seems to have done a lot of self-reflection there about, you know, sometimes in game he's, he's quiet or not talking to guys and, you know, maybe they take it the wrong way. So then he needs to be more of a vocal leader or more encouraging and, and kind of present and project that positivity that, that he hasn't always had to do when he wasn't, you know, the guy on the team. One of the, the other interesting comments I thought was that he said that the, the best leader he had ever been around was LeBron James, and they only spent that one all-star game together. What do you think about something like that? Can, can you pick up that much leadership uh, experience from a guy that you only spent a little bit of time around? Well, I think it's what comes in with that leadership, uh, the background of that leadership. Uh, Brian was probably rolling in with the, with the championship or two. Maybe, I'm not sure yeah. exactly, but that's a lot of leadership. And that's a lot of, I want to be like that, or I want to do that. So if it takes this to do that, then I need to figure out how to bring that back to my organization. And I think a lot of that goes on, you know, with not necessarily all-star games because there's no, there's no real preparation. Uh, but when these guys are playing in, in the world games or the, the summer games or the, the Olympic games, I think that that is very important because it is, you know, the best players from each team. Most of them are, are winning situations and, and you are able to pull um, leadership qualities from guys. I mean, it's no different than reading a book or, you know, hearing, you know, someone, you know, give you a philosophy on how to, to conduct yourself. Uh, that can just be a, a, a couple minutes or a few words. So, I think it, it is very realistic that he picked up, you know, what it'll essentially take to become who he wants to be. And now he has to do his homework uh, to reach that. I mean, he heard it, but that didn't mean that he necessarily was that guy once he heard it. So now I would assume that he's, you know, he's trying to reach that goal of, of how to be an ultimate leader so he can have that parade. I mean, we all want that parade, man. That's, that parade is what we're chasing. So, if anybody has it, hey, let's sit down and talk about how you got it. And and I think that that's where, where Brad is at right now. That's re- those are really good points. And I, I kind of hadn't really thought about it that way. So that was, that was interesting to, to hear. I, I mean, I think some amount of that isn't just what a guy says, but also the presence and, and the way they present that. And I, I got to think, you know, I haven't been around the guy, but I got to imagine LeBron commands a room and, and kind of projects himself as a winner and a leader. Well, at this point, he's the king. So, you know, you, you got you to gotta listen to him. I mean, it's just it's one of those deals. I mean, he's the reigning, he's the reigning guy right now. Uh, Brad also said that he kind of responds best when, when coaches are in his face and yell at him and are willing to cuss him out. And that actually his mom was the most willing to do that. It's probably the best coach he'd had. But uh, that's not really, you know, Scott Brooks's MO. He's kind of more of the 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 player friendly kind of laid back um, type of guy. Did the players ever go to coaches and say like, "Hey, I need you to be a little more in my face," or "This is how you get the best out of me"? Or how does that sort of dynamic work? 
No, nah, not really, man. If, if if a guy has to go to a coach and tell him to be more, and it's, you've, we've always heard, like, it's not always greener on, on the other side. Sure. So it's it's a um, it's a group effort. It's a group effort. I don't think it's about any coach getting in, you know, and yelling in your face. I mean, they should hold you accountable. And accountability is not done, um, you know, necessarily using authority, right? It's just, it's just, you know, if I hold you accountable, it's not because I'm the head coach. It's just because – you're not doing something right that's going to benefit the entire group. So if, if our coach is not holding everyone accountable to a, to a standard, uh, and, and every team has a pecking order, but if, if our head coach is not holding everyone accountable, uh, including the star, uh, then there is a problem there. But I wouldn't say just because a coach is not a yeller or a screamer uh, that he can't command his room or he can't get his point across. Uh, but you know, if a coach is not holding those players accountable and that player is like, yo, he's not saying anything to me, then he's not the right guy. Uh, okay, everybody, the, that was this week's Believe in Wizards podcast. Obviously, we got Larry's thoughts on, on the last dance, and, and we'll have more of those over the next couple of weeks. And I think we got some good guests lined up for you to give a little more, uh, you know, firsthand insight uh, once we've had more to to digest about the documentary. Obviously, we had our uh, Matt Babcock interview in the middle there, and then a little bit of a Wizards talked around out the show just to make sure that we uh, we ticked the box for for the name of the show here a little bit. Uh, but but I encourage everybody to check us out on social media. Obviously, it's Believe in Wizards, B-L-E-A-V. Please rate, uh, review, and subscribe. Obviously, downloads help because it helps tell our network that you know we're we're doing what we're supposed to be. Um, uh, all the feedback we can uh, we can get, the better. So uh, again, it's Believe in Wizards. I'm Matt. He's Larry, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Yes, sir. ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done